Hello, friend, and welcome to A Nightmare Before Halloween. Take a seat here, next to the campfire. Don't you know the woods are a terribly dangerous place to be alone? I've invited a few friends here to join us tonight. They are almost exclusively crime podcasters who all have a terrifying tale to share. You're going to hear 31 spooky stories. And before we conclude with a soothing, deadly bedtime story, we'll be visited by someone the devil himself would likely think twice before crossing. All podcasts joining tonight you'll find listed in the episode show notes in order of appearance, along with a link on where to find them. If you're in the mood for true crime or spooky tales, or maybe to learn about some other podcasts you could start listening to, well, then you're in the right place. Ah, the campfire feels nice and warm now, doesn't it? I'm Shane Waters, by the way, the host of Foul Play Crime Series. And tonight, stay close. You never know who or what could be lurking in these dark woods. I'll start with the first spooky crime story of the night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History can be spooky sometimes too, right? Do you enjoy coffee? How about true crime? Well, Maggie and Allison cover lesser-known cases, and they like their coffee hot and cases cold. On the Coffee and Cases podcast. The setting for our case this week, Maggie, is New York. The towns of Cheektowaga and Depew, New York, to be exact. On the evening of Saturday, October 30th, 1982. 18-year-old James Adamski had on his costume. He was going for what he called the American gigolo look. The Richard Gere film had just come out two years earlier, and I'm sure James, this 18-year-old, was loving the idea of going as a young man looking for a sugar mama. Oh, I'm sure. I'm positive. (laughs) Now, Maggie, this was a different time since it wasn't until 1988 that all states in the U.S. had raised their drinking age to 21. Oh, I feel so dumb. I didn't even know that there was a different age. I didn't know this either until I started researching this case. But at the time, it was legal at the age of 18 to drink in New York. And that was precisely James Adamski's plan. (laughs) He was heading from his home on View Court in Cheektowaga to the 5 and 23 bar at the corner of Transit Road and Walden Avenue in Depew. They were having a Halloween Eve celebration. And it was one of those pay a cover charge and drink all night deals. Okay. So I feel like very um, typical experience for a lot of 18-year-olds. Yes. And I'm thinking it happened on Halloween Eve because Halloween Eve was a Saturday. Oh, yeah. And Halloween was on a Sunday. Before making the two-mile walk from his home to the bar, he let his parents know he'd be home later. And then when passing by his eight-year-old younger brother, Andy, already in his costume and ready to go get as much candy as humanly possible, (laughs) James kissed his little brother on the forehead and said, have a good time trick-or-treating, kid, as he strode out the door. I know. I I can imagine like a little ruffling of the hair. Yeah, me too. At the bar that night, like most 18-year-olds, I'm sure would, James made the most of the (laughs) all-you-can-drink and, by most accounts, was quite inebriated by the end of the night. Yeah, again, as most 18-year-old people would be. Yes. While James was a happy-go-lucky, thoughtful guy, he did get into an argument that evening with some other patrons at the bar, but 
it luckily quickly de-escalated before anything got out of hand or got physical or anything like that. James left 5 and 23 in the wee hours of the following morning, October 31st. And 5 and 23 is the name of the bar? Correct. Okay. He left the bar walking south in the company of a young woman and walked along Transit Road near Broadway with her for part of his journey back home before parting ways around 3.30 a.m. So I'm assuming because you say a young woman, we don't know this lady's name? I have not seen her name printed anywhere, no. Mm. But James Adamski never made it home. His brother Andy recalled to journalists Dan Herbeck and Karen Robinson of the Buffalo News, quote, When he didn't come home the next morning, my mother knew something was wrong. He was very respectful of our parents. He would never have stayed away all night without telling them, end quote. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the episode we did, episode 150 on Kurt Sova, that he tells his parents he's going to be out and they just kind of trust him and they go to bed. But then when they wake Mm -hmm. up, he isn't there. Yeah, it's super similar because James kind of had that same relationship with his parents. So when he didn't come home, that was so out of character for him that his parents immediately alerted law enforcement when he didn't come home. However, even with launching a large-scale search, officers found no sign of James. Nearly two months after his disappearance, though, on December 26th, Day after Christmas, two rabbit hunters were out in a rural wooded area right by some railroad tracks near Ransom Road in Lancaster, New York, when they approached what looked like a thicket. Upon moving some leaves and twigs out of the way, thinking that they would scare rabbits out into the open, they instead discovered a body buried in a shallow grave and covered with those twigs that I mentioned. Mm Mm-hmm. The very next day, police had identified the body as that of James Adamski. He was still dressed in his costume from the night he went missing. Though his body was found in a location four miles from where he had last been seen. The cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. From what law enforcement speculated was an instrument like a baseball bat, a two-by-four, or a tire iron. Oh, my goodness. That is such a wide range yeah. of potential weapons. Are tire irons the things that you use when you're changing a flat tire, the skinny things? Hmm. He had been dealt numerous blows to the head, making it clear that this was a homicide and not an accident. But finding the perpetrator would prove harder than they thought because James was a young man whom everybody seemed to adore and who had no known enemies. Who would want to harm someone like that? And while there was the argument at the bar, those individuals were questioned by and cleared by law enforcement. Yeah, and you said it de-escalated quickly, so right. that makes me think they kind of resolved it on their own. Mm-hmm. And the girl he walked partially with, the last other than the perpetrator, to see him alive was also questioned and cleared as well. Hmm. Police did collect some of the twigs that had been covering James's body because those twigs were of a similar length and had clearly been broken off of nearby trees, which told law enforcement that the perpetrator had touched them while attempting to conceal James's body. So it wasn't as though his body were there two months, and so, you know, random branches had fallen. Yeah, it was just natural. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This is purposeful concealment. Those twigs were sent to a laboratory to test for fingerprints, but they were unable to find any. But what about his clothes? There should be something on those. Yes, and you're right, because while an attempt at obtaining DNA evidence was unsuccessful with the twigs, law enforcement do still have his Halloween costume, and they do hope that one day DNA testing will advance enough that the clothes will point them directly to James's killer. And it advances, I feel like, 
every day we're learning about new new advancements. So I'm sure that's possible. Exactly. In the meantime, what police need most is for someone, anyone, with information about that night to come forward to detail everything that they remember. The smallest and seemingly insignificant memory of that night could be all they need to solve this case. And they do believe, Maggie, because of the body's location so far away, that someone had picked James up in a car. I wonder if it was someone he knew. Well, they speculate on that. We don't know. It was either someone he knew, and so he willingly accepted a ride from them, and then something went awry along the way, or he was forced into a car by someone with an intent to cause harm. But despite many uncertainties, one detail actually stands out to me. And that is that his body was found in a rural area that was not easily accessible. So they needed to be familiar with the area. That's what it seems to say to me. While James's father passed away in 2000 and his mother in 2005 without any closure, his brother Andy and James's other siblings still live with hope of answers. Andy recalled the devastating aftermath of his brother's murder in the Buffalo News article, Cold Case Files, 34 Years Later, Halloween Murder Haunts Family, and how his mother became so overprotective of the rest of her children, always worried that they too would be killed. Of his older brother James, who he looked up to so much, Andy said, quote, My brother was such a good person. He was the type of person who would give you the shirt off his back just so you'd have a shirt. If they ever do catch the person and the whole story comes out, I know it will be hard for me, but it's even harder not knowing, end quote. To close, here are a few words from a detective of the Lancaster Police Department. My name is Robert Cornell. I'm a detective with the town of Lancaster Police Department in New York. My department is still actively investigating the uh, homicide of James Adamski. If anyone has any information on this case, anything would be helpful to our investigation. If you could please call our police department. There's an $11,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest and indictment in this case. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Lancaster Police Department at 716-683-2800. You could buy a lot of candy for $11,000. Mama Margot is the host of Military Murder, which focuses on crimes committed by military members, veterans, and sometimes their spouses. Don't worry, you don't have to have knowledge about the military to listen. Now, let's jump into this true spooky tale. In 1993, an army sergeant named Stephen was notified that his wife was in the hospital. At the hospital, his wife confessed that she was pregnant. Stephen was like, wait, I had a vasectomy. How can that be? The wifey eventually confessed that she had an affair. Stephen pressed his wife to learn who she had an affair with. The wife wouldn't give him much information, except to say the person's rank, which was specialist. And once she told her husband that the guy she was cheating on him with was a specialist, he didn't even bother waiting around for the name because Stephen knew exactly who it was. It was his best friend. So Stephen then marched his pissed off self off to the military base and there he began to hunt for his wife's lover. Mind you, the wife had asked Stephen for a divorce and even though he was hesitant at first, he had finally said yes before this incident. Fast forward to the military installation, which happens to be in Germany, and Stephen is looking for his ex-best friend. He finds the specialist. The specialist's name is Greg, and Greg is in a phone booth. The phone booth is in front of the dining facility during dinner time, so there are plenty of people around. Greg doesn't see Steve coming, and in fact, he's on the phone with Stephen's wife. Eventually, he sees Stephen, and he tells the woman, your husband is here, and then the call goes dead. At the phone booth, Stephen and Greg are fighting to the death. Then, all of a sudden, Greg collapses. A circle of onlookers gather around. It looks like Stephen is whooping on Greg because Greg is just laying there while Stephen keeps punching him. But Steve isn't punching him. 
he's actually stabbing him. Greg is laying there motionless and people are watching. And then Steve starts to make some sort of chopping motions with what eventually turns out to be a knife. He gets up and starts kicking Greg repeatedly on the head until the head physically detaches from the body. Everyone is now watching in horror. They are probably hiding now as Stephen picks up the man's head. He scoffs and says aloud, that's what you get for being an adulterer. Then Stephen drives off with Greg's head in tow. Minutes later, there is a commotion at the hospital. A blood-soaked Stephen walks into his wife's hospital room and grabs something from his bag. It's Greg's head. He places it down next to her and forces her to look at it. And then he says, now you can picture this for the rest of your life. Stephen was immediately arrested and it wasn't hard to prove he did it. There were dozens of eyewitnesses after all. And Stephen confessed to the doctors in the hospital. Months later, at his military court-martial, also known as a trial, he put on the good soldier defense, evidence that he was the best thing since sliced bread, and he had never, ever, ever, ever done anything wrong in his life. Ultimately, Stephen was convicted of killing Greg and was sentenced to life in prison. But the army general in charge of this court-martial ended up reducing Stephen's sentence to 30 years. Needless to say, this former soldier served less than 30 years due to good time and was released. Crazy story, right? Bet you thought it was an urban legend, but it's not. I don't even have a comment for that story. I'll just leave it. My friends at the Dystopian Simulation Radio are here to share an underwater nightmare that takes place on the floor of a cave that has taken several lives and it's time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In 1996, expert cave diver Nuno Gomez of New York City was awarded a Guinness World Record for the deepest dive in Bushman's Hole, a cave in South Africa. Gomez descended over 270 metres down to the depths of the cave, where it took only 14 minutes to plunge into the darkest depths of what the locals call Bushman's Hut where he spent just four minutes at the bottom in an expedition that took a total of 12-plus hours to complete. The lengthy stint factored in a decompression schedule to stave off the bends, a painful decompression sickness that can cause pain, paralysis, and death if a diver ascends too quickly. Nuno Gomez made it out from the deepest depths of the Bushman's cave with his life intact. But the same could not be said to those before and after him. Bozeman Gatt claimed the life of Eben Linden in 1993, after Leyden passed out descending 60 metres. The cave also took the life of Deandrea, who was only 20 years old, when he blacked out in the Bushman's cave while doing an air dive. He died at around 70 metres, his body sinking 270 metres to the bottom where it would remain for a decade. David Shaw was a technical diver, pilot, father and husband, and lover of all things extreme. His wife, Anne, knew that there was always a risk that Dave may not return from his adventures, but knew how passionate he was about his endeavours and had never dreamed of denying him of them. David had some close calls in the past, but he always believed that God was watching over him. 
He was constantly testing his limits and pushing the boundaries to see how far he could go. David began scuba diving in his early 40s. He enjoyed it right away, but it wasn't challenging enough, and soon he began pursuing more technical dives. This is where Dave became interested in cave diving. In order to dive deeper for longer, divers use rebreathers, a specialist diving apparatus that recycles the air. David Shaw purchased his own rebreather, but felt limited by what the equipment had to offer. So he made some edits of his own that would allow him to descend even deeper. Dave had always been interested in exploring untouched pockets of the earth, of which few remain. And he believed cave diving offered unexplored territory that he could be the first to see. Bushman's Hole, a submerged freshwater cave in Northern Cape, South Africa, west of Johannesburg, called Dave's name. And on October 28, 2004, he completed a record-breaking dive of 270 meters. To enter the cave, a diver must first climb down rocks before connecting with the water below and descend into a narrow tube that widens as it goes deeper. The main part of the cave is around 60 meters down and a rope attached to the ceiling of the main cave guides the diver through the cavernous black abyss. Without the rope, a diver would find themselves disorientated, with nothing but darkness in every direction. Divers carry powerful lights for this reason, strong white beams cutting through the void, alerting other divers on the mission of their presence. When David resurfaced, he said he had spotted the body of Deandrea, whose body had been suspended 270 meters down in the cave for an entire decade. David described turning his head to the left while on the cave floor, where he found himself face to face with Deandrea, his face still covered with a mask. Dave added that at that depth, he struggled to breathe and knew he had to resurface. David Shaw felt compelled to retrieve Deandrea's body. Not only had he seen it during his dive, the image of which had played on his mind since resurfacing, but he had even experienced a premonition of finding Dion's body in a dream he had just a couple of days before the dive. David, a father himself, went to Dion Dreyer's parents and told them of his plans to retrieve their son's body. They were ecstatic at the news and had always wanted their son's remains back on dry land so they could honour his memory and lay him to rest. Dion's body had been in the cave for so long that it was assumed that his remains would be skeletal. To prevent the bones from slipping out of his diving suit and dispersing in all directions, it was agreed David would carefully put the remains into a customised body bag that he would take down with him. At that depth, David Shaw would have a maximum of five minutes to load Dion's skeletal remains into the bag. This included cutting the dive suit off Dion's body. Always pushing the limits, David decided that he wanted to salvage Dion's equipment, which was lodged on the cave floor. He planned to tie a separate rope to the equipment with the hope of excavating it and dragging it to the surface. Within two months, David Shaw returned to South Africa, prepared to retrieve Dion's body. On January 8th, 2005, with a camera mounted to his helmet, David descended into Bushman's cave for what would tragically be his final dive. With a camera mounted to his helmet to film the dive, and Dion's family waiting patiently at the surface of the cave to receive his remains, David plunged into the water. Factoring in the lengthy ascent for adequate decompression to avoid the bends, David would be in the water for approximately 12 hours, with 12 minutes to dive to the bottom and a mere 5 minutes spent preparing Dion's remains for excavation. Dion's body was expected to break the surface around 1.5 hours into the dive. 
but this would not be the case. At 6.15am, David plunged into the darkness, never to resurface alive. The mission was supported by a team of 30, including two world-renowned support divers and others meeting him along the way at various depths of the dive. One of the team divers, Don Shirley, waited at a depth of 220 metres, waiting for David to meet him. But when he looked below, he could see no sign of movement. Just a still spotlight, static on the cave floor, unmoving. The diver descended to assist David, but the handset on his wrist cracked under the pressure before surpassing 240 metres, and he made the decision to return to the surface. David Shaw died attempting to retrieve Dion Dreyer's body. When the team pulled up the line, they found Dion Dreyer's body attached to it, as well as the body of David Shaw, with the camera still attached to his dive helmet. Although he had lost his life, he had completed his mission of salvaging Dion's remains from the cave floor. When the team reviewed the footage, they watched David Shaw's last moments alive. The video showed David Shaw on the cave floor, his hands pale white in front of him, pulling out the body bag. Although it was assumed that after ten years, Dion's body would have been skeletal, the body instead seemed to be in a more preserved state, almost a state of mummification with buoyancy. Dion's body unexpectedly floated up before David, making the task of getting it into the body bag more difficult. In the footage, David becomes tangled in the line, the rope wrapping around his torch and arms, making the job almost impossible. David attempts to cut himself free from the tangle with his scissors, but misses the rope multiple times, struggling and slipping backwards on the sloped cave floor. His breathing becomes laborious, and his hands start shaking. When it was time to leave, David knew this and attempted to swim up, but he was tangled in the ropes, unable to free himself. The increased breathing caused by David's struggle produced significantly more CO2, eventually depriving him of oxygen and causing him to drift off, his light still hanging as he floated unconscious. The final scene of David's life showed his hands, motionless, the line he failed to cut wound loosely between his fingers. Despite meticulous planning, David died alone on the cave floor, his teammates helpless and unable to save him, forced to look down at his light, unmoving and still. Maybe our Christmas special can take place at that cave. Whitney and Melissa are the hosts of Cult Crimes in Cabernet. Four times a year, they travel to locations to help the family members of the murdered and missing. I'll let them take it over from here. Mount Pleasant, Michigan is a city located in the heart of the state. If you need a visual and are aware of how Michigan looks like a mitten, Mount Pleasant is right smack dab in the center of the palm. It has a population of just under 22,000. The main campus of Central Michigan University calls Mount Pleasant home. It is truly a college town, as when school is in session, the population almost doubles in size. Mount Pleasant is also home to the Christ Community Fellowship. This is a very small church, so small that the congregation was of about 14 people at its height. It was led by Pastor John D. White, 
who came with a past. White was a veteran of the Navy and also had worked as a long-haul truck driver in his early years. Before becoming head of the fellowship, he lived in Battle Creek, Michigan, which is a little over 100 miles south of Mount Pleasant. In 1980 is where our first report of violent behavior really begins. White was 22 years old when he invited his 17-year-old neighbor, Teresa Etherton, over to show her his stock car race track setup. Teresa walked down into the basement where White attacked her and stabbed her 15 times before choking her. Teresa remembers White's hands around her neck and saying, quote, you're going to go now. I'm really sorry you had to go like this, but what the f***? You're just a woman. Teresa is obviously a badass and survived the attack, and White was arrested after Teresa reported him to police. He pled no contest, and in 1981, he was sent to prison for 10 years. After being incarcerated for two years, he appealed and was released. Teresa did not hear of his release until one day while standing in line at a store, she heard his chilling voice and turned around to see White smiling at her. This was the first time the justice system failed a victim of John White's while leaving him free to hurt more people. There is a gap in White's criminal history after he was released in the mid-80s. He wasn't connected with any crimes until July of 1994. White had gotten married, had one kid with one on the way, and they were living near Kalamazoo, Michigan at the time. White was working maintenance at a textile facility where he met a 26-year-old woman named Vicki Sue Wall. The two struck up an affair, and the evening of July 11, 1994, surveillance footage confirmed that the two met in the Meyer grocery store on Gull Road. Vicky got into the black pickup truck with John at around 3 a.m., and the two left the lot, and Vicky was not seen again. She was reported missing, and police would call White in for questioning. He told the police that the two were having an affair, that they did meet at the Myers parking lot, and that he returned her to her home later. There was no evidence to hold him on any charges, so he was free to go after questioning. White checked himself into the Kalamazoo Regional Psychiatric Hospital not long after Vicky went missing. Six weeks after Vicky was last seen alive, her body was found just two miles away from that Myers grocery store. This was in a rural area. She was found naked except for a shirt and a bra that had been wrapped around her neck. Her body was very decomposed. The medical examiner could not determine the cause of death and very little evidence was found. White refused to speak with police again and would not take a lie detector test. His pickup truck was searched and with the help of Luminol, blood was found in several areas. In early September 1994, about a week after Vicky's body was found, White would be arrested at the psychiatric hospital only having the blood evidence inside White's pickup truck and very little other evidence, first-degree murder charges wouldn't hold up in court. White pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 8 to 15 years. John claimed to love Vicky and that her death was just an accident. While incarcerated, John was seeing a psychologist. He told his doctor that he had murderous fantasies and was turned on by necrophilia. He also claimed to have learned that his fantasies were wrong and that he was aware of that and that he had been reformed. When White was released on February 11, 2007, he was set on being a man of God. He moved to Mount Pleasant into a mobile home neighborhood about 11 miles west of town. He took on the pastor role at the Christ Community Fellowship Church where he met and fell in love with Sally Gay. The two would get engaged, and Sally moved in with him in the neighborhood, and her daughter, Rebecca Gay, and her son lived just a few doors down. The church knew of his past, but believed in redemption and that John had been reformed. A few weeks before Halloween in 2012, John's fantasies started creeping back in. On Halloween Eve, John was at his home drinking heavily when his urges overtook him. 
He walked a few doors down to Rebecca's trailer in the early morning hours, carrying a rubber mallet and zip ties. He entered her home and hit her in the head repeatedly until she was unconscious. He then took a zip tie, placed it around her neck, and tightened it, strangling her to death. Rebecca's three-year-old son was sleeping in the next room. John then took the rubber mallet, towels he used to clean up the mess with, and placed all of it in trash bags with Rebecca's body. He loaded it into his pickup. He took her body about a mile from her home and disposed of it in a ditch behind a tree line. John then returned to Rebecca's home and cared for her son, Conway, as he had before. He dressed him in his Halloween costume and met his father in a grocery store parking lot to exchange custody. When Rebecca didn't show up for work on Halloween, her co-workers became concerned and reported her missing. John took to his congregation, pleading for prayers for her to be found. The very next day, while being questioned, John admitted to murdering Rebecca and told police where they could find her body. He claimed his motive was his fantasies fueled by the necrophilia pornographic material that he had been watching for weeks leading up. He couldn't remember if he sexually assaulted Rebecca after her death or not, but she was found nude. He admitted to taking her car to a bar nearby called The Barn Door to stage her disappearance as a kidnapping. His confession was not the only nail in his coffin. Authorities were able to find Rebecca's blood and her necklace inside of his truck. Fingerprints and DNA all tied back to John as well. He was not clean or meticulous in any way when committing this murder. This time, the justice system did not fail. Authorities were prepared to put him away for good. In April of 2013, White was sentenced to 56 years in prison. At the time, he was 55 years old. John only lasted a few months in prison, and on August 28th of 2013, he was found hanging in his prison cell from self-inflicted asphyxiation. Revival attempts were made, but unsuccessful. Do you think Whitney and Melissa give listeners free Cabernet? We should find out. My friend Emily is coming to the campfire next. Her podcast is Morbidology, where she covers a new crime case each week, taking an in-depth look at any systemic failures that may have had a part to play in the crime. Now let's travel back in time to August of 1992 to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where our crime takes place. Yoshihiro Hattori was a 16-year-old Japanese exchange student who moved in with the Haymaker family. He was affectionately known by his friends and family as Yoshi. Yoshi was the third exchange student that the Haymakers had hosted, and the second from Japan. Yoshi settled in perfectly. He enjoyed fishing with the family, and he always made sure to help out with his share of the chores. Brian Haymaker stated, He was throwing his heart into everything. He was making friends. He was adventurous. He was having trouble with English, but he was going on anyway. When Yoshi came to America, he was enrolled at McKinley High School, where he was known as a fun-loving and conscientious student who almost always had a smile on his face. His classmates said that he could always make them laugh, especially when he randomly broke into a Western dance step. As his friend Mandolin Fawn said, no matter who was rude to him, no matter what happened, he always had a smile on his face. In fall of 1992, Halloween was fast approaching, and Yoshi could hardly wait for his first Halloween in the United States. He and Webb who was the teenage son of the Haymakers, had been invited to a Halloween party, which was being held on the 17th of October. Yoshi had already picked out the perfect costume for somebody who was known for their impromptu dances. He was dressing up as John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, donning a tuxedo and white jacket, and topped off with some jewellery around his neck. Webb wasn't as excited as Yoshi, and he opted out of wearing a costume that night. The Halloween party was being held at the host family of another Japanese exchange student. 
The purpose of the Halloween party was for exchange students to get to know other exchange students so that they could share their experiences and make new friends. When Yoshi and Webb arrived in the neighborhood, they went up to 10311 East Brookside Drive. The home was adorned with all the Halloween decorations one would expect for a Halloween party. But Yoshi and Webb were unfortunately at the wrong home. They had transposed two numbers in the address of the home where the party was being held and ended up at 10311 instead of 10131. The house belonged to Rodney Pierce and his wife Bonnie. Yoshi and Webb approached the front doorstep and knocked on the door. Bonnie opened it up, screamed, and then slammed it closed. She hollered to Rodney to go and get his gun. When Yoshi and Webb realised that they must have been at the wrong home, they turned around to walk back towards their car in pursuit of the correct home. As they were standing on the footpath outside the home, trying to figure out their next move, Rodney appeared at the door beside the carport. He was armed with a forty-four Magnum revolver. He shouted at the teenagers to freeze, but Yoshi, who was just learning English, didn't understand what this command meant. Yoshi shouted out, We're here for the party, as he proceeded to walk towards Rodney. While it isn't known for sure, there's every chance that Yoshi thought that the gun was a prop. Part of the Halloween party. When Yoshi didn't freeze, Rodney fired his gun point-blank at him before running back inside. Yoshi crumbled at the ground as Webb ran to the home next door, screaming for help. The neighbour, Stanley Lucky, immediately called an ambulance and then bolted outside to try and assist Yoshi, who lay critically injured outside Rodney's home. Neither Rodney nor his wife offered any assistance. They stood inside their home, peering out the window, even shouting at Stanley to go away when he came to help Yoshi. Webb and Stanley attempted to comfort Yoshi, who was bleeding heavily. They held his hand as he sobbed. Both Rodney and Bonnie stayed inside their home until police descended on the scene. Yoshi was bundled into an ambulance. But tragically, he died en route to hospital. He had been shot once in the chest. The bullet had perforated his left lung and then exited out his back. As news of the senseless shooting swept across the city like wildfire, many people were left wondering how something so tragic could have transpired. Holly Haymaker, whose family was hosting Yoshi, said that if Rodney had in fact shouted freeze at Yoshi, he wouldn't have understood what it meant. As Holly said, Yoshi struggled with English. Rodney was taken into custody, but he wasn't arrested. Bud Connor of the East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Department said that there was no criminal intent on Rodney's part and stated that he was well within his rights to shoot Yoshi. The case was then turned over to the district attorney's office for a decision to be made on whether any action would be taken. It would be determined that Rodney would be facing a grand jury investigation. Just the day after the shooting, all of Japan's national television networks offered a lesson in English, as the anchors explained how the word freeze could be used to mean don't move or I'll shoot you. The shooting broke headlines in Japan where the shooting of anybody, in particular teenagers, were extremely rare. In fact, officials of both the government and the student sponsoring programs said that they never even thought that it would be necessary to teach high school students how to deal with possible gun attacks. At the time, tensions between America and Japan were high, and the shooting only amplified the tension, with a lot of people saying that the shooting had reflected a decline in American society. As one TV reporter said, America, what a country. You can't even walk around outside and be safe. Many people live in fear all the time over there. On the 20th of October, a memorial service was held 
at the Unitarian Church of Baton Rouge, where around 300 mourners packed in. During the emotional service, Yoshi's mother, Miko Hattori, said that she and her husband felt sympathy for Rodney. Turning to the crowd, she said, We are sorry in our awareness of Mr. Pierce's suffering from this most unfortunate event. She went on to say that she was perplexed by how easily accessible guns are in America, before stating, Without them, Mr. Pierce wouldn't have been put in the position he's in right now. Her words prompted a standing ovation from the mourners, as it highlighted her true compassion even in the face of adversity. Holly Haymaker also spoke. During the service, she recollected how on the first day that Yoshi entered her home, he put his arms around her and called her mum. She described how he slotted right in with the family and became an integral part almost immediately. She told the mourners how Yoshi liked to keep his room tidy and he loved dancing in the kitchen. Towards the end of the service, Yoshi's father, Masachi Hattori, thanked the crowd for coming to bid farewell to his son, who had left the world with much undone. He said that despite their heartache, his family were dedicated to the mission Yoshi had undertaken to make friends in America and strengthen the ties between Japan and the United States. In a news conference the following day, Rodney's lawyer, Lewis Unglesby, said that Rodney felt great regret over what he had done. He said that his client was not a criminal, but a person who was afraid of becoming the victim of a crime. He said that it was a dark night, and Rodney hadn't realised that Yoshi was dressed up for a Halloween party. In early November, it was announced that a grand jury had rejected a second-degree murder charge, and instead returned a manslaughter indictment against Rodney for shooting Yoshi. Following the decision, Rodney surrendered, and his lawyer announced that he was expecting his client to post bond. Just the following day, Rodney posted a $100,000 property bond, and was released from custody while awaiting trial. He pleaded not guilty to the charge. Within a month of the shooting, Japan collected over 800,000 signatures on a petition urging the United States to adopt stricter gun control. They presented US Ambassador Michael Armacost with the petition, who said that the petition would make a positive contribution to the debate on gun control in America. He also said that he would transmit the petition to the White House. Rodney's trial would begin in May of 1993. During opening statements, Defence Unglesby said that Rodney shot Yoshi because he thought that he was protecting his wife and three children from an intruder. Prosecutor Doug Moreau asked the jurors not to judge Rodney as a person, but judge his conduct on the night of the shooting. He described Rodney as criminally negligent and said that he should be convicted of manslaughter. He said that after Rodney opened the door, after it had been slammed closed by Bonnie, Yoshi interpreted this as an invitation to the party they had been searching for. The jury would hear a recorded interview between Rodney and investigators. He detailed how Bonnie told him to get his gun, and he didn't even question why. He said that when he went outside he saw Yoshi, who was wearing a white suit and carrying something which turned out to be a camera. He said that Yoshi appeared to be laughing, but when he failed to stop moving, he shot him. He said that he was protecting his family, but when he was asked if he knew what he was protecting them from, he simply said no. Prosecutor Morrow argued during the trial that the actions of the couple were not reasonable. He said that it hadn't been rational for a man of six feet two inches tall to be afraid of a friendly and unarmed boy who weighed just 130 pounds a boy who rang the doorbell, before walking away. Yoshi hadn't attempted to break in. He wasn't wearing a scary mask. He wasn't armed. He was simply looking for a Halloween party. Following all of the testimony, the jury were sent away to deliberate. Under Louisiana law, homicide can be justified for a number of reasons, including what is known as the shoot the burglar law, which allows people to protect themselves from intruders. It took just three hours for the jury to reach a verdict. They found Rodney not guilty of manslaughter. Many in court applauded when the four women announced the verdict. Yoshi's parents said that they weren't surprised, but they were disappointed. Rodney was later found to be liable to Yoshi's parents for $650,000 in damages. 
With this money, Yoshi's parents founded two charities in their son's name. One was to fund US students wanting to visit Japan, while the other was for gun control. His parents later presented President Bill Clinton with a petition signed by 1.7 million Japanese citizens calling for stricter gun laws. They became big supporters of the Brady Bill, which mandated background checks and a five-day waiting period for the purchase of guns in the United States. The shooting of Yoshi had truly been instrumental in the passage of the bill. Following his acquittal, Rodney Pierce claimed that he would never own a gun again, and he admitted that he had simply overreacted to his wife's fear. This overreaction caused a teenage boy in the frontier of adulthood to lose his life in the most terrifying way imaginable. So what do you think? Should he have been found guilty? It looks like my next friend is running a little late. They do this sometimes. You have friends like this too, right? While we wait, let's stop here. I'll keep the campfire warm whenever you're ready to return. Don't forget, all the podcasts you've heard from are listed in the show notes in order of appearance. Okay, I'll let you go now. See you again soon.